Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is not a stranger to many, most dare I say, all of you that have been on this podcasting journey with me. It's Bill Bohr. Bill is a pastor, a church leadership consultant. He does lots of interfaith work. He's the co-host of New Persuasive Words, and most importantly, a near and dear friend. Bill, welcome back to the podcast. I never, I usually don't say that to you, but so here we are. Bill Bohr is, uh, it's, uh, it's, neat. I was going to say first time, long time, but you're not first time. You're long, many time, many times, long time. Thank you for having me, uh, to your studio, Scott. <laughs> I've always funny. wanted to be in the bunker and <laughs> it looks, it looks so much deeper. <laughs> what did Doug Patrick say? Everybody it, says that. It looks I mean, so much bigger. It, screen, it does look, yeah. If you know, it's interesting. If you look at this, you can see why people say that because it does look deeper. It does look deeper. Yeah. yeah there's an optical. Very nice. Yeah. So here we go. Our first reading is Nehemiah, the eighth chapter, verses one through three, five through six, and eight through 10. You know, verses four and seven must be politically incorrect. Well, you know, I, again, I, I, I always ignore the lectionary when they do that. Yeah. I think you read the whole text, and actually, you probably should read, start in chapter seven and go through nine one, because I think nine one's actually an important kicker. But uh, book of Nehemiah, I wonder how many people actually will pick to do this text. None. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, well, maybe it's, it's actually it's a pretty powerful text, and I you know here's an example of as a side comment, I'll slip in some biblical critical stuff, partially because there are people in the congregation who seriously read the text, and Ezra and Nehemiah has all kinds of those, problems for those three people. <laughs> well, I actually find uh, like, like I did a Bible study this past week. People are really hungry to know more. You know, there are groups of people who want more. So uh, part of the problem with Nehemiah chapter eight is it made it doesn't really make sense totally where it is. It could be, this is part of the whole problem of the dating Ezra and Nehemiah, the relationship. It easily could be located somewhere in Ezra, between Ezra 8 and Ezra 10, because it makes more sense there. But nonetheless, that's a side issue. And, you know, this is part of the problem, the dating of the book, because particularly this speech. But what we do have, we have a unified front, Ezra, the spiritual leader, Nehemiah, the political leader. And if you know the history of the Second Temple, that won't happen very often, uh, where you have both uh, spiritual leadership in those two positions. But uh, it's a reading of Ezra's Torah. I mean, uh, this is probably, um, you know, if you trust the narrative, maybe the first time the redacted Pentateuch has been been read in read, public. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's to me what's partially powerful about it is their the people's response. They're weeping. This to me would be a really fascinating sermonic point. Uh, why are the people weeping initially? Um, uh, are they weeping because they failed to live up to it? Are they weeping because it reminds them of the tragic history of their people? Um, but then the response of the leadership to, to to make it more tender, you know, to say, oh, this should be a day of the law should bring about feasting. And celebration, not not uh, torment. And I think this also speaks to the really the theology of not only Second Temple Judaism but Rabbinical Judaism and and Judaism as it's practiced today. The law is a gift; it's not a curse; it's a gift for our Jewish brothers and sisters. Yeah, it's interesting. 
you you have this sort of reconstructed Jerusalem, right? Or, the, or Jerusalem in ruins and kind of... Kind leave. of being rebuilt, <laughs> yeah. And I think about, like, in The Walking Dead, in the beginning of the season, they had this... They were living in Alexandria, and they had this excursion to the Smithsonian because they were trying to get, like, they were heirloom seeds, and they were trying to farm and stuff. Uh, and so seeing these people riding in carts and horses in a, in a, in a completely sort of, <clears throat> like, demolished Washington, D.C., where these things that once meant everything don't mean quite the same thing. And, right. and you have this sort of, it's an interesting, I mean, you wonder about the tears th there because this, this, and then you think about what is Jerusalem like in the cultural memory of these people. Right. Like, so, yeah. you, you know, what, I mean, you always say the good old days, but what is, uh, what did A.J. Jacobs say in his book, uh, Thanks a Thousand? I always remind myself in gratitude to, uh, practices, like the good old days weren't so good. They were dirtier. They were worse. <laughs> it's like every time I'm, I'm uh, every time I feel negative about my life, I just say three things: surgery before anesthetic. <laughs> but, but this is the thing, right? Like, yeah, yeah. oftentimes the good old days are not as good. But that we, but that's the nostalgia. So I, you wonder how much the people are thinking. Oh my gosh, these the, the stories of, right. of of the great people we were. Right. I think it's all the things. I do think, and also, is this this very important idea that the reconstruction of the people of Israel is going to be centered around. At this juncture, not the temple, but but the Torah, and uh, it, it's what's not, I think good to at least make a reference. If you preach on this, to make a reference to nine one, is that then they celebrate Yom Kippur, yeah, on uh, uh, a date it's not usually celebrated. So this idea that what's the law is not only offered to the people, but an opportunity, a, a bomb for their soul is offered as well to to think about the corporate, you know, historical failure, but it's a, it's a hopeful scene. It's meant to be hopeful. It's interesting. I think the leadership sees it as a hopeful scene. The people respond in a very emotional, where you get the in, in implication. It was, it was a cut to the heart kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that, that is interesting that, that you celebrate something not normally when it's celebrated. It reminds us that, what does Chesterton say? Tradition is the, is the living faith of the dead traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Yeah, I, so think, the, it's, I think it's Pelican said that. Uh, Chesterton said it first. Did he say it first? Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think. Well, it doesn't matter. I think. Both of them are noble. One's older. So one's if, older. If one said it, then he must have <laughs> One's older. Chesterton. It doesn't matter. But, but if Chesterton didn't say it, he should have. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, that, that this is a living tradition. Yeah, it, it is. But it's a tradition that will be significantly... It's it's retuned in a different in a definitely a different key. So there's a radical con, there's a there's a continuity, but a radical discontinuity with post-exilic Judaism and uh, and this, you know the, the Judaism that Jesus will be interacting with and in and the Judaism that Jesus was nurtured in really I think is born. Um, I mean, it might be too dramatic to say it's born at this event, but this is the time period it's born in. Yeah, and I also think it's there's a little bit of a new creation vibe, right? Because the word, I mean, this is a recreation. Yeah, that's right. We're not going to talk about Psalm 19, but that's certainly the playoff of creation and, and the giving of Torah. Yeah. 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 So just like in, in Genesis, the word is there. And yep. The baptism of Jesus, all yeah, these, yeah. The, all these are recreation moments. Yep. All right. So on to... First Corinthians chapter twelve, and here we have more about the body and many and parts. And you can't say to the uh, the uh, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. 
you can't say because I'm the president. We, uh, you know, the the Congress. <laughs> We should. This would be a great text for our government right now, right? We can't. We all have to work together as one body. Yeah. Well, if you're going to tie the two texts together, too, it's it's interesting. We tend to uh, write history, the history of usually great men, not great women. But there's a sense where the you could argue that the central character of the Nehemiah narrative is the people. In other words, the the text is read to the people. It's you could even argue the the feasting is a response, of, a pastoral response to the people. Perhaps even the you know, uh, unusual observance of Yom Kippur is also trying to bring, you know, some solve to the people's, to the people, um, you know, their, their souls, their, their troubled souls from hearing the Torah. So this idea that the central of the body of Christ, the, you know, the body of the Messiah, the body of Israel, it's an idea that, that's there throughout the, the scriptures. Yeah. And here, you know, it, it, I love when people read First Corinthians thirteen at weddings, right? Because it's like this supposed to be sentimental, but it's like Paul is telling them, like, love is patient, love is kind. Like, he's saying everything that they're not in the first twelve chapters. You're <laughs> not kind. You're you're impatient. You're not waiting for people. That you're rude. You're self seeking. You don't yeah. delight in the truth. But I mean, here's a, a place where it's kind of the pre First Corinthians thirteen, and Paul's talking about. It's obvious, like, if people, if Paul is saying, you can't say. You know, to the, the hand can't say, I'm not part of the body. Right. It's obviously this is going on. People are saying, I'm, the, I'm better than this. And, and by the and way, certain kinds of ecstatic gifts are more important. And Right. The, there's a theological egalitarianism from the beginning in the New Testament. As opposed to complementarianism. <laughs> well, no, but in other words, it's a, any kind of egalitarian views of the sexes really is not born out of any kind of, of uh, progressive politics. It's born out of the theological reality of the unity of the body of Christ and that there's an equality among the body. There's different roles, but not different ranks. <clears throat> and uh, even all that is subset to the what's good for the whole. Yeah. And you have, I mean, you have, it's interesting because this is, I mean, the spirit for Paul in Corinthians does a couple of things, right? It frees us from slavery to mm-hmm. mute idols. It enables us to confess Jesus as Lord. And through that confession, it enables you to be part of the new humanity, right? So, right. Which is, Really, our telos, right? I mean, everybody, you know, if if we are, as Aristotle said, you know, life is meaningful and a telos and an end, and that's our end to be one people, right? uh, In you know, united under the Lamb, and so here, I mean, again, I guess the implicit thing is that 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 they're kind of fighting the spirit. (laughs) Well, yeah, well, the divisions, you know, there there are all kinds of divisions, but there certainly is a division between. Uh, the haves and have-nots, those who consider themselves the spirituals and the less-than-spiritual. So you've got kind of a proto-gnostic thing going on there. And it's interesting that now in, in Second Corinthians, which is probably a couple different letters, you know, Paul is forced to defend his authority. You know, he's kind of forced to, to defend his own authority. But in First Corinthians 12, he's trying to uh, help the churches many, many problems by reminding them who they are. Yeah, and it, yeah, right. It's sort of like saying that. What do they always say? You hear this analogy that you learn, you don't learn. Um, the people that try like are trained to spot counterfeit bills. Mm-hmm. You don't learn to spot counterfeit bills by studying every variant of counterfeit. You learn by studying what the true currency looks right. like, right? Because there's so many infinite vari- you know, v- varied forms of of counterfeit bills. I suppose not that I'm that familiar with counterfeit no. bills, but. But that's the same thing, right? It's yeah. it's not it, it's not just by saying this is the wrong thing, but reminding them 
what their true nature is. And in reference to each other, you yeah. know, it's a gesturing. There's, there is, you can talk about who we are as a church in reference to Christ. We can talk about who the church is in reference to the world. But here Paul is saying, this is how you are to live together. And, and again, it's, I think this idea of humbly submitting to one another, it's in, you know, it's in Ephesians and Philippians and this idea, and certainly the body passage, there's a, you know, Romans 12 has a, talks about the church as the body of Christ. And I think it's all trying to have a proper perspective of who you're sitting around when you worship. Yeah, and it's interesting too because well, well I mean, first thing I was thinking about the the fact that they're wayward. I mean, Paul begins the letter to the saints at Corinth, right? So right. they're they're saints. Their, their saintliness isn't contingent on their performance <laughs> or something. That's who they are objectively. Like right, the, so right the the, the, the bride is, the bride of Christ gets to wear white at the feast, exactly. not because it earned it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then this is the kind of thing, right? The subjective kind of coming in line with what you objectively are. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, and I think that's, you know, again, it, it, you know, it, I've always, uh, one of the phrases from C.S. Lewis that stays with me consistently is this idea, never forget you're among potential immortals. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is a sense where... um yeah, I think I've told this story before, but I'm reminded of the story of the Desert Father where it turns out uh, it's a long story, but the punchline is the most uh, saintly person in the whole community was a woman that was pretending to be mentally challenged and waiting on everybody. Wow, wow. And then when it's revealed that she is actually the greatest in the desert, uh, she has to leave at night because then she can't do her sanctification anymore because people would treat her in a different way. So this idea that in God's eyes, the first shall be last. I mean, this is an extension of the gospel teaching. I think, you know, the, how much did Paul know of Jesus? Well, wouldn't you say that this is working out of the first shall be last, really, in terms of not as a eschatological ethic, but as an ethic among the body of Christ? It's funny. Henri Nouwen tells that story when he's at the large community. Here he's, he's been taught at Harvard, like all these people, and he, he's going to pass meat to one of the yeah. early handicapped people he says and the one guy says he doesn't eat meat he's a presbyterian <laughs> and then says, that's where now says i realized everything i knew and learned means yeah. nothing here like yeah that's in that by the way that's a great book the book is called adam it's like kind of by the last about the last days of his life too it's very powerful there. yeah you yeah. know yeah. the other thing i was struck by like in this before we move on is this if one member suffers all suffer together if mm -hmm. one member is honored all i feel like the church especially in a place like america but I mean, <clears throat> i'm sure this is the church everywhere but i think how often do people celebrate when they're br the branch of the church they don't like fails? Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? And, and are sad when this group gets more accolades or something. It's almost like people can't celebrate or, or right. you know, like people love to lift up the scandals of the movement they don't like. Right. They hate it when the movement that they're not in succeeds. I mean, just look at Facebook. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I do think, uh, and this was a former, when I was on Young Life staff, my supervisor one time said, you know, what I think really is a determination of a, one's Christianity. Can you rejoice with someone who's rejoicing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Good. Well, then the Luke passage. Luke 4. Uh, this is Jesus coming to the hometown to preach, opening up the scroll. 
electionary of sorts, right? It's, oh yeah, it yeah. Would, be the election. I mean, that's that's where that the whole idea comes from. So much of our worship comes from modeled after synagogue worship. Yeah, and you and here he stands up, reads the scroll about from Isaiah about the prisoners mm. being freed and the 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 poor having good news preached to them and sight to the blind and says today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing and it's not received incredibly well <laughs> no no it doesn't 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 go doesn't go over well which is kind of interesting it's, it's that's isaiah 61 is it not I don't yeah know. okay and which is actually from kind of third isaiah because <laughs> you know second isaiah is very hopeful about what's going to happen you know when you get back you know go back you know the preacher of of babylon the isaiah babylon's preaching beautiful i mean i think isaiah 40 through 55 is the most quoted section of the old, of the Hebrew scriptures in the New Testament. Uh, I, I, my, I think if it's is not... It, the most quoted text is Psalm... Well, the single one, text. But, single text. But if you consider Isaiah 40 through 55 a literary... That, that reference to that that Psalm is at 110 is the most quoted output. You know, like, I, that existentially doesn't ring true when you're reading the... I mean, I know it's factually true, <laughs> but when you're reading the New Testament, it just doesn't seem like it jumps out everywhere. But, but you know, the backdrop of Isaiah 61 is the disappointment. You know, I yeah. think it's the party gets back to there and it's not going so well. And I think that makes it even more kind of poignant here where Jesus is reading this powerful image of of uh, the eschatological, es- you, know, uh, you know, establishment of God's reign on earth. And... Uh, and he says, today it's been fulfilled, and it goes downhill from there. Yeah, and it's interesting, right, because he's reading this in a time where there are a lot of apocalyptic prophets, mm-hmm. people at Qumran, John is, in, his cousin sure. is a forerunner sure. there, and so... The Qumran community is out there yeah. waiting for the end of the world, plus there are groups, there's groups in Egypt, there's, you know, there are a lot of... I don't know how many a lot, but there is. This is not a. Uh, this is not a singular moment, if you will. No, there's there's eschatological fever, as they say, mm-hmm. and it's interesting. So he, it, <laughs> I've got the fever. <laughs> I've got the fever, and only a cowbell will settle it. <laughs> yeah. So so the people uh, are scandalized by this. Right. Like, who is he saying this kind of? And he slips out of the crowd like Batman. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Uh, you know, the other thing that's interesting to me. Uh, what do you do? This is one of those passages, and again, you know, I cut my teeth on, uh, on um, you know, sojourners and early Ron Sider and uh, uh, those folks who really kind of rediscovered the radical call of, of the gospel. And this is one of those, you know, really powerful radical calls. It, it's like the magnificent. It, do, it doesn't, magnificent, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. <laughs> you know, there's a sense where you can, you can be tempted to over-spiritualize it. But it, it does kind of fall on, on not only on deaf ears, but it kind of falls on hostile ears. Now you can say that this is the, you know, you can say, well, this is what the role of the church is supposed to do. And then in Christ, this is fulfilled. This idea that we are to preach good news to the poor, that the message releases captive and that those who are spiritually blind can see and those who are physically or spiritually oppressed can be set free. I do think that's a powerful message of what the liberating message of Christ does. But we always have to understand too that the hearers were listening for that to be literally fulfilled. I mean, what that they weren't looking for a spiritual fulfillment of that text. And I still think that kind of reminds us of the unfinished work of the kingdom. Yeah. Well, also, I think because John the Baptist says this to Jesus, right? In Matthew 16, like, are you the one? I mean, because you're not, it doesn't look like it. <laughs> it doesn't look like Isaiah 61 to me here. I'm not really comfortable with you drinking with those guys. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, what's interesting though, this is, we've talked about this before n- numerous times, but the, that John's message is not yet, but soon, right? And Jesus, and that's a typical apocalyptic 
second temple message. It's right. Like, it's it's around the corner. There's different ways to prepare for it, and it's bad. Right, right. It's 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 it's. it's it'll <laughs> the be day good. of the Lord is bad, and I hope it will be good for some, and we hope we're that some. <laughs> <laughs> a very for some people, a very small. And here's so. what we're selling, like uh, <laughs> to prepare you for that moment. But Jesus changes that. To you all. can have your eschatological survival kit right here. Dude, so, there's that John Hagee, the guy in Texas. Right. He has a ra- He had rapture DVDs. What happens if you're left? Like, all right. Now we're in heaven now, so I'm in heaven. But if you've been left, this is what it's going to look like. They're going to like it's, it's like so you can buy them for your non-Christian friends. Very nice, yeah. To get through the, you know, there is a pet. So they, make, they make they make great stuffing stuff. Their stuff. There's stuff. actually a pet rapture pet care thing, and you buy insurance, and they guarantee that all of their employees are agnostics or atheists. So they, there's no chance they'll be raptured. That's amazing. Why didn't we think of that? Right. Well, I tell you, if you get raptured, I get left behind. I'm not feeding your dog. Exactly. No, no. You could be their food. That'd be their food. Uh, So, But Jesus changing it from not yet, but soon to already not yet makes space for, because there are poor that have good news preaching. And also literally, you know, some stories like Zacchaeus where there, there is uh, limited redress and things. And and the blind do see that, but yet it's already and not yet. There's still a not yetness to it. And so that, but I think that transformation of Jesus from not yet, but soon to already not yet makes basically space for the whole Christian way of looking at reality. That, right. That life is a pilgrimage, that we're sinners and saints, that, that the two cities, you know, the, 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 all these things, I think like this little innovation of Jesus here. Yeah. And he, what he does too is he leaves out the judgment portion of Isaiah 16. He does. Yeah. Purposefully. So he's sort of saying, no, the judgment. I'm 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 embodying uh, the good news about the day of the Lord, but without, but he leaves out the judgment. Well, and I also think part of what you know, and sometimes this can be ignored in the two cities or the sinner saint dichotomy is that you know Jesus says you give them something to eat. In other words, the there is a very even though you know it hasn't happened supernaturally per se. I mean, there is a there is certainly a spiritual set free, and I've seen many blind come to sight spiritually. I've seen many of the oppressed set free. Uh, but there's a sense that we're to work into this. I mean, I uh, you know one of my favorite uh, stories to tell that kind of reminds me of this is uh, my maternal grandmother was a saint. Um, her sister not so much, and uh, <laughs> we'll just leave her like that. And you're when, saintly enough for both of us. When my grandmother died, my uh, great aunt started like being nice and like giving people food, and and so we were kind of worried about her. We didn't know what was going on, and and someone said, "Are you okay, Aunt Peggy?" And she goes, "I'm just doing what Hattie would do if she was here." Hmm. And I think that's part of you know the proclamation of Jesus. In part, is not fully fulfilled because we're supposed to to. To work it out, we're supposed to do it. Certainly, all the great reform movements, all the great spiritual movements of almost all of them of Christianity, have often touched on this passage. Whether you think, you know, Francis immediately comes to mind, but there's so many more that you uh, said we're supposed to do this. Certainly, the Wesleyan uh, renewal saw this as a passage why their what fed their concern for the poor was. The idea that the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, also means that we care about the needs of people. Yeah, it's interesting because Luther says, right, that our, our works are not for God. He doesn't need them. They're for our neighbor. Absolutely. And yeah. you have that. There's great. You know, and the best of the Calvin work ethic. Yeah. You know, you, you, you're productive so you can give back to those in need. There, There's this great hymn by William Cowper, Love Constrains to Obedience. And he has this, the refrain is, to see the law by Christ fulfilled. He's here. He's here. This is fulfilled in your heart. 
to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty to choice. Yeah. So there's the sense in which, I mean, the judge judged in our place. He leaves out the judgment right. portion and yet would be the one judged in our place. Bart says the judge judged in our place. And that is the reality that, that, that ought to free us right. from ourselves and for our neighbor. There's also a really interesting contrast between the community of Ezra and Nehemiah and the townsfolks of Nazareth. The people in Nehemiah's day were cut to the heart, not unlike the better day of Pentecost. Crowd to, better crowd to preach to. <laughs> <laughs> but it also, and I think Pentecost is a reenactment of sense of that yeah. Nehemiah passage. We often talk about it being a reenactment of um, Babel. Or, Babel, but I think it's certainly, there's certainly memories of the Nehemiah, Ezra Nehemiah gathering as well. Yeah. So, well, may uh, blessings and everybody's preaching. Yeah, happy here. preaching next week. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Bill for being on the podcast, and thanks again to you for listening. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.